Welcome to Quest with Kirk Durston. I'm your host, Sheldon Kotick. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us five stars if you like it. If you don't like it, please tell us why. And now, Quest with Kirk Durston. Hello, Kirk. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Sheldon. And how are you doing? Doing okay. A little bit sleepy. Uh, I I think I've got the COVIDs and uh, oh, no. yeah, went through. <laughs> My wife got it uh, a couple weeks ago. We think she's got the. T- oh, yeah. She did the test. I didn't do the test. We have about thirty yeah. of them in our house to do, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It I, seems I, like one of those things that everybody gets on a regular basis. Yeah. No, it, it's. Uh, it's interesting though, because my my dad had it, and he basically ended up on the floor and couldn't move for a couple of days. And wow. he he just said he was so tired, yeah. like not really coughing, no other symptoms, just mm-hmm. really really tired. And I I couldn't understand what he was saying. Now I understand. Hmm. I'm just tired, wow. but um, yeah. and brain fog. But it's hard to tell. Like, cause normally coming up the <laughs> stairs, okay, I'm tired, but now I have to stop at the yeah. landing, have a nap, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, this should be an inter- interesting live stream. Then if you're in a state of brain fog, that should make it extra so, exciting. So I was thinking about this. If we're just particles, what does brain fog look like for the particles? Oh, you know, they could probably explain that quite nicely with chemistry. Yeah, there would be various, um, I'll say, I don't know if it's directly viruses in your brain or is the result of your body fighting the virus that releases certain chemicals and and bodily defenses and immune system responses, and uh, one of which could be brain fog. I actually don't know anything about why the brain fog is there I, I'm, or how it causes Now, it. if the brain fog is there, how do I know the brain fog's there? <clears throat> that is actually a pretty good question, uh, Sheldon. It's a very good question. And I saw the same thing happen with um, my a, a close relative of mine when she began to develop dementia. She knew that her brain wasn't working properly. And so the question is, how do you know your brain's not working properly if the you is your brain itself? I mean, if you're, if you are your brain and it's not working properly, you're not going to know it because everything is, um, now there's some possible maybe workarounds, subroutines and stuff you could postulate. But, uh, if you actually have a mind, if you actually have a mind that interfaces with the physical world through your brain, then it would not be surprising if your mind detects that, wait a sec here, this interface is not up to speed. It's not, it's not behaving properly here. It's kind of limiting um, what I can do. And so in the case of the person with dementia, they were very frustrated because they knew their brain was really, really letting them down. And they just could not make things happen anymore or communicate as well anymore. And they were frustrated. Wow. Yeah. And I know there's been like um, people that have been in a coma for years and years and years and not much brain activity, but they knew what was going on. Yeah. I've read about instances like that. It's very interesting. 
That's why I think if you have a friend or a relative in a coma, it's it's a good thing just to go visit them in the hospital mm-hmm. and talk to them as if they're just laying there conscious but with their eyes closed because you never know how it might actually help, you know, the person recover. All right. Well, um, how are you doing? Well, I don't have any, I, I hope I don't have any brain fog. I've had my, I've actually had two cups of coffee already today. Normally I do two per day and I'm going to have a third when I get uh, back to my office. So, um, I seem to be awake. I'm not falling asleep and, um, I don't seem to have any diseases at the moment so <laughs> and it's a beautiful spring day out there so i'm actually doing pretty well yeah, a weather report from here it's uh it's hovering right around the freezing mark so right now it's one degree uh hour ago it was about okay. zero and uh, yeah. big fat snowflakes were coming down but they've stopped oh yes so mm-hmm. um yeah there's a little bit we could see our driveway for the first time in months yesterday well, that's I a love bonus. the look of cement. Uh, I think it's a yeah. great, great look. The neighbor actually has grass because he had a um, had a big front end loader come in and clear part of his property, so it can oh. so we can see because we can't see the road yeah. from our driveway. It's that's true. The snow gets piled up to, so high you can't yeah. see the street. Yeah. So now it's uh, some pump watch making sure that works. Um, yeah. And uh, my wife was out digging a trail to the barbecue so we can do some ribs. And uh, oh, nice. So she was out there again. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's slushy season here. Now, uh, Winnipeg yeah. is a slushy, um, slurpy capital of the world. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also the slushy capital of the world, I think, if you look at the um, pavement outside. It's okay. just nice uh, nice slush, brown slush. Mm. It's like a Coke Slurpee dro- oh. dropped all over. Yeah. Not so much a fan of the brown color for snow, but uh, yeah. it's better than the yellow color. It is better than the I'll yellow color. I'll take brown. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we are talking about intelligent design, God, and why does it matter? Um, the last few, uh, conversations we've had, we've basically determined that logic would dictate and there is an intelligence, intelligent designer. There's a supernatural, um, designer to this whole universe thing to life. Um, anything you want to recap on that? Uh, well, no, basically in the last uh, live stream, we I, I, we talked about the fine-tuning of the universe. It's incredibly fine-tuned and what the different options and explanations would be. But at the end of the day, um, it the best explanation, the explanation has that's the simplest using Occam's razor that has the greatest explanatory power is that there is a mind behind the universe that actually designed it such that it could support life. And so then there's an inference we can make from that, because if you're making something, most people who make stuff, they make it for some point. There's some purpose to it. Even a painting is is made with some, often with some sort of objective of communicating some sort of feeling or or response to it. So there got to be a point to the universe, and the point seems to be to support life, and if that's the case, then there's got to be a point to life. There's got to be some sort of reason that the designer of the universe had in mind to put li- to for life to be in the universe. And since we're life, in fact, the only 
life we know of so far is on this planet. And there's some actual reasons why maybe we go into another time that astronomers are getting a little pessimistic of finding life elsewhere in the universe. There's some pretty, the universe isn't as hospitable as we might think. And uh, so it really is quite surprising, even though the universe is designed to support life, that it's not all over the place. Uh, but that has implications if, if it's designed to support life and really we can find life too many places except here on this planet. And we need to say this life on the planet probably has a purpose. And when you look at us as human beings, there's something different about us compared to all the rest of the animals. And that is we seem to have a level of intelligence and creativity that allows us to drastically modify our environment, invent new things like aircraft and computers. Um, we can use that in a good way or we can use it in a bad way to fight wars and pollute the place. But we, it, is, it, is seemed to be, it does seem to be the case that there's something highly unique about humans, which raises the question, well, if the designer designed the universe to support life and life is on this planet and we seem to be unique amongst the life in this planet, we may have a very specific purpose. There may be a specific purpose for human existence. So it, to take a step back, like we're not talking, uh, we're not going to throw a bunch of Bible verses out there at this point. We're not going to say the Christian God is the only God. Mm -hmm. Like um, We're not making that um comment at this point uh, we'll probably get there um have we determined like i i think there's some stuff that uh maybe darwin has said about um just the creation doesn't necessarily mean there is a god um like is there any mm -hmm. other things that um objections that people would have to there's a God as, or a supernatural creator as a, uh, as an yeah. explanation. But before we, we get into that, if you're watching, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're watching the live stream or whether you're watching the archive of this, um, please subscribe, tell your friends, uh, leave a comment, hit the like button, hit the bell to be notified of uh, future videos. It'd be um, awesome uh, to get some engagement just so that uh, YouTube sends more people to watch these videos. So uh, if you could do that, that'd be awesome. And uh, we do read all the comments, uh, respond to the majority of them. And if, uh, if you have any objections to what we're saying, uh, we would love to hear them. Um, tell us why we're wrong. All right. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's two, uh, there are two primary or very common objections to the idea that there's an intelligent mind behind the universe and behind life. Um, and uh, maybe I'll start with a Darwinian one first. So that has to do with biological life. So um, there was this uh, individual in the past named William Paley, and he came up with what's known as a design argument for, for God or for life being designed. And that is, it certainly, he looked at life and the way the ecosystem works, and it just seems so amazingly designed. And that the appearance of design is something that's generally agreed across the board, whether you are um, a complete materialist and believe that life arose through an evolutionary process, or whether you're 
who believe that there's an intelligent mind behind the universe, the appearance is there. So they generally grant the appearance, but the common response is, is that Darwin um, basically laid to rest the design argument that William Paley, uh, Paley used the idea of a watch. If you're walking along and you find this watch, uh, and I'm paraphrasing his argument here, just laying somewhere in, in the forest or in a, in a field of grass, you pick it up and you look at it and you can see that, wow, this looks like it's, there's something different about this. It looks very much designed and therefore there must be a designer behind this watch. What is the watchmaker? But the, the, uh, the Darwinist will come along and say, well, actually, uh, Charles Darwin uh, laid that to rest. They show, Darwin showed how we can actually have life look so incredibly fine-tuned and designed, but it's all done through a Darwinian process. So that was the, the theory that Darwin put forward in his Origin of Species. How, and so it's th commonly thought that, okay, we don't, we've dispensed with the argument from design for the existence of a, some sort of an intelligent creator. But um, wait a sec, just wait a sec, hold it right there. That actually is not true. It's, it's actually an urban myth at this point that Darwin actually explained uh, the design-like uh, look of, say, the biological life forms. And here's why. Here's why it's failed. Okay, <clears throat> when we listen to a creative story, it remains a creative story unless we can test and verify it in a repeatable way. In other words, there's a difference between a science, scientific explanation and science fiction. A scientific explanation is an explanation. It can start as a creative story, but then you go and test it out you can verify that this works and you can do it in a repeatable way. Then it transitions from just a creative story into a scientific explanation. But if it, you can't verify that, if you can't reproduce that in real life, then it remains just a creative story and you can classify it as science fiction. And here's our problem. Um, we should be able to reproduce uh, the evolution of novel species and genera and so forth. We should be able to do that in theory if Darwin is right. Now, the standard response is, well, yeah, but it takes millions of years. Well, there's a standard response to that, and, and that is, yes, it takes millions of years because it's just a blind, unguided process. In fact, Richard Dawkins wrote a short book called The Blind Watchmaker, emphasizing that you can have basically nature and natural selection and it doesn't have anything in mind because it doesn't have a mind and it's not looking to see where it goes. It just produces more offspring than what can survive. And so those that are able to reproduce more effectively, those are the ones that remain. And if there's mutations and so forth, that can sort of change and evolve and, and eventually you get a new species or a new genus and so forth. So uh, if we eliminate the chance factor, and that's why it takes millions of years, because it's just a totally blind process that's unguided. It's a mindless process, mindless and blind. And so it just re re uh, depends on chance, chance events in the environment that such that this particular variety will do better than that variety and so forth. Well, in science, we can radically speed up a process by eliminating chance from it. For example, uh, 
pull up my uh, good old cell phone again. This could, in theory, be produced by chance. I mean, the, the probability is vanishingly small, but it could be produced by chance. And But if you wanted to produce it by chance, you would probably require billions of years, maybe millions of universes. The probability is so small, but eventually you could do that if you had enough trials because it's just being produced by chance. Now, in real life, we produce these all the time. And that's because in the factory, they're not relying on chance to produce this. They eliminate all that. And we can do that when we simulate evolution in the lab or in select, through selective breeding. We can vastly, by orders of magnitude, accelerate the evolutionary process. And when we do that, what we do in every case is we hit a wall, a genetic barrier. And that is there's only so much information encoded into the DNA of a particular species. And it allows for an enormous amount of variation, enormous amount, but you're stuck with the genes, the protein coding genes that are already there. If you want to produce something new, you're going to have to invent an entirely new gene that codes for a novel protein. And that is where the problem lies. That is where you have to rely on chance for that. You can't just um, rely on nature to fine tune and through natural selection produce an, a novel gene. There's, it gets really technical at this point, but the bottom line is this, is that Charles Darwin did not, in fact, do away with a design argument for life. It was a creative story and it still remains a creative story. It works nicely for, let's say, explaining variation within a given species beautifully. Darwinian theory works beautifully for variation within a given species, but it has utterly failed as an explanation to produce an entirely novel, well, let's go with the genus. For example, the species is, is, um, is our definition, and, it's, and that is up for discussion sometimes, what constitutes the definition of a novel species. But certainly by the time you get to a novel genus, then it's uh, where you... Bottom line is if you need entirely new genes encoding entirely novel, stable folding proteins, you've hit a wall. And uh, that's why Darwin actually has not explained how life looks so well designed. So we're still back with the design argument. But the second one, and I'll pause here. I'll just want yeah, to, I, I just there's have, another. I, I just, for those of us that are not scientists at all, um, a species is like cat. Well, okay. Or, uh, the we, one general, let's say a layperson's definition of a species is that it's a, it's a, it's a collection of animals that can, or plants or whatever that can only reproduce. They're, they're reproductively, isolated. That is, they cannot reproduce. If you got a number of birds and they can all mate with each other and reproduce with each other, that's generally a good definition of a species or a common, maybe not a good one, but a common definition of a species is that it has to do with reproduction. And if this thing can reproduce with this thing over here, then it's the same species. Now, but, humans are really good at trying to get different things to breed with each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in nature is Darwin saying that's what is happening is um, you get two different species that mate creating a brand new thing 
which is better than the rest or is it not usually uh in darwinian theory it's not so much that you get a novel species by this species breeding with this one which is right off the bat difficult to do Mm -hmm. simply because the definition of a species that reproductively they're isolated in their own little group and then you have this group over here they can only reproduce amongst themselves so you don't get reproduction going on normally but you can you can get a let's say two different species uh, mating with each other to produce what's known as a hybrid for example the lake trout mating with a brook trout those are both the same genus they're both char but they can reproduce to produce a splake trout known as a splake but the splake can't reproduce a lot a lot of times these hybrids are sterile sterile they can't reproduce if they're not sterile then we got to re-examine our our idea which does happen sometimes we'll say oh we thought these were two different species but they can mate and they can reproduce and produce viable offspring that will themselves be able to reproduce and therefore this actually is maybe a sub these are two subspecies of a larger group we'll just call the larger group as a species okay so that, but, that, helps. No, nor- that helps a little bit just um in that Mm-hmm. In that way, because my mind is always trying to figure out how, um, why would something that is uh, supposedly better than what was there before happen? Because from what I understand, like uh, normally when there is uh, changes happening, in a uh, in a species or or uh, just in 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 life, normally when something is happening, it's going downhill. It's not usually going uphill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that downhill uphill. That's a. I mean, we could we probably could have a whole discussion on on some of these things. But bottom line is, is that um, if the environment changes, then what was within a given species, you'll have variation. If the environment changes, then this variation over here that was doing so well might actually not be doing quite as well anymore because there's a change in the environment. And maybe this variety of the same species will do better. So this one will become more common in the general population. But sometimes, a lot of times, actually, the, the adaptation the change is negative. That is, let's say, take sickle cell anemia, for example. Sickle cell anemia is not something you normally want to have. However, in certain parts of Africa where there is sleeping sickness, uh, it can actually be an advantage because you don't, uh, it doesn't affect you or affect you as badly. And therefore, um, those with no sickle cell anemia might not even survive long enough to reproduce. Whereas those that have it, which is really a defective gene, the gene has gone downhill. It's, it's, it's a defect or a genetic uh, disorder or defect. Uh, but that has basically uh, pulled the rug out from underneath, so to speak, the sleeping, the sleeping sickness ability to, to uh, harm the person. Because it needed that, it needed the protein that that gene produced. But now that the protein's defective, or the protein complex is defective, now the virus can't work as well in that person. So they actually survive better, even though they've had some loss of information in their genome. 
So a lot of times these adaptations are due to loss of information and they can compete in very specific environments. For example, let's say antibiotic resistant bacteria, for example, those uh, will do better in an environment where the antibiotic is. But if you whip the antibiotic away, if you take it away, the wild type is actually more fit or more able to survive than the antibiotic resistant bacteria because the wild type is better equipped for a wider variety of circumstances. Okay. I think I get it. <laughs> I, don't, I, hope, I hope we're not losing anybody here, but that's... Okay. So um, having gone through uh, Darwin's explanation, um, mm -hmm. we haven't been able to reproduce uh, macroevolution in a lab. Yeah. We're, and macroevolution, I would define as the ability to... Uh, to uh, encode entirely new information into the genome. It's not necessarily taking one genome from an, un, one species into another. No, it's Darwinian uh, evolution if it's going to evolve entirely novel life forms and life forms with, with even more genes than, say, the first cell, then it's going to have to be able to uh, basically come up with digital information in the DNA that codes for an entirely different kind of protein that folds into an entirely different kind of structure. That's the problem. That's that. Uh, the more we're learning about proteins, the more we're seeing that theory is thoroughly falsified. Nature, nature can come up with new genes that code for useless proteins. Those are a dime a dozen. Those are very easy to come up with trivially easy to to produce a novel protein by evolution that that is not a that does not produce a stable fold and has no function it's extremely easy to do that but for biological life it requires a for about 75 percent of the proteins they have to fold into a stable three-dimensional structure that's unique to that protein and it has to have some sort of function that'll carry out within the cell and so that's a highly, highly specified problem. And it's very difficult to find proteins out there that fold into a stable three-dimensional structure. They're almost, well, the probability of finding one is so small that you would not expect to find one naturally occur anywhere in the universe in 10 billion years. That's how small they were for the average protein. Okay, but let's say we found one. Let's, let's mm -hmm. say by chance... We yeah. found one. Mm -hmm. Is it just sitting there? Well, that's the thing. It would just sit there because it also has to have a function. Let's say you were you wanted to go to you went to an alien planet and you're walking around and here you find, hey, this is a nine sixteenth inch bolt laying on the ground here that just formed naturally from you know the iron and nickel and whatever on the planet. And there you have it, a beautifully nicely threaded nine sixteenth inch bolt. And in theory, you might be able to evolve an aircraft out of that, except if you got nothing to stick that bolt, there's no nut, for example, uh, you got a problem. And that's why you can't, it's not good enough just to be fantastically lucky to find a protein somewhere, but also you have to be able to have something for it to do. And if it, there's nothing for it to do, that bolt is just slowly going to erode away back into the soil of the planet. There's nothing to to uh, preserve it. But in biological life, if a protein does something useful 
that's especially if it's it's vital for the survival of that organism it's going to be preserved and any offspring that don't have that protein they just won't make it they'll just be eliminated and those that have it will continue to reproduce and produce that same protein okay so so that's so the chances of getting like two um that are able to figure out how to work together two organisms with these brand new DNAs that just magically happen or by chance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the same planet over billions and billions and millions of years. We know how big the earth is. Like how do we, how do we then say, okay, Darwin, um, in Darwin's mind over billions of years, this is happening so often that the ones that survive are able to reproduce to the point that it continues. Well, the probabilities become so fantastically small that it becomes very obvious very quickly. If you're actually going to crunch the numbers that you will never get life on this planet or anywhere else in the universe. And that's what led Eugene Koonin to postulate, well, there must be an infinite number of universes then if we're going to come up with a natural explanation here. But, but there, there would have to be an infinite mind. number of universes that could support life before even hitting the Yeah, life. before even getting one that actually had life in it. Because of the fact that the, the mere fact you have an aquarium sitting in your living room full of water and stones... Uh, you may have to sit there for a long time before a fish evolves from individual molecules and appears in your aquarium. That'll be a long time. So it doesn't follow that because you've got a universe that's capable of supporting life that you're ever going to get life in it. And that's, that's, the, that's the problem. Now, this is where uh, an objection comes up against what I've said. And they said, well, what you're saying here is basically they would call it the God of the gaps argument. And a God of the gaps argument always has this proposition in it, this premise. And the premise is this. If we don't know what did it, then God did it. That's the premise that's embedded in, the, in a God of the gaps argument. So for example, an example of a God of the gaps argument is I lost my snow pants. They're beautiful Gore-Tex bib overalls. And they disappeared several years ago. I have no explanation where they went. Like, they shouldn't have left the house because basically the last time I wore them was on the hill behind the house. So I got to the gaps argument would go like this. I have not the faintest idea where my bib overall Gore-Tex snow pants went. Proposition number two. If you don't have the faintest idea how something happened, then God did it. Logical conclusion God made my snow pants disappear. That's a God of the gaps argument. But now they accuse uh, the, uh, an objector when it comes to the origin of life. They would say, well, you're doing, you're doing this. You're saying we have no idea. I mean, we look at the probabilities. It's so vanishingly small. We have no idea how life could have come naturally on the planet. Proposition number two, if we have no idea, then God did it. Therefore, the logical conclusion, God was the creator of life on this planet. And uh, they, they object to that middle proposition. If we have no clue what, how it happened, then God did it. And, it's, and, it's, a, and it's, a, it's a meaningful objection. I mean, look at my snow pants, for example. I don't actually believe 
God divinely intervened in this universe to make my snow pants disappear, there's got to be a better explanation. And that's usually the comeback, okay? There's got to be a better, there will be, maybe we haven't discovered it yet, but that we will discover it. There'll be an explanation, even though right now it looks wildly improbable. So that's the God of the gaps argument. Now I would respond by this, by saying a couple of things. Well, first of all, let me pause. Do you understand what I mean by a God of the gaps argument? I think so. It's, it's, uh, it's used to justify a, a mystery. Yeah. We don't know what did it. Therefore God did it. And that's a pretty shaky premise to embrace. It doesn't mean it's false. For example, um, maybe, I mean, it doesn't follow that therefore God did not do it because we don't know, we can't explain it, but it doesn't logically follow that therefore God did do it. We're kind of, well, we need something else here because that proposition isn't doing it for me. So what we need, and this is where an intelligent mind is implicated for life. What we need is some positive reason to say, we think there's an intelligent mind behind this. We need some positive evidence, not just, we don't, we can't explain this. Therefore, you know, God did it. And that positive evidence then uh, whips the rug out from underneath the feet of the God of the gaps objection. So it's no longer, we don't know what did it, but rather, oh, this has the fingerprints of intelligent, of an intelligent mind on it. Therefore, we can infer that there's an intelligent mind that produced it. So here's how it works. It has to do with information, functional information, which is defined in the scientific literature. In Nature, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, there are papers and articles in both of those two uh, that define that and elsewhere. And it's just a simple mathematical equation. And I won't give you the equation right now because if I start describing mathematical equations, people's eyes glaze over. But I will tell you one thing. At the heart of any equation for information, functional information, by functional, I mean it does something. So if I say the combination for the, the safe at the bank is, and I give you some numbers, that's functional information because it actually can open that vault. Now, not all information has to be functional as far as humans are concerned. For example, in biological cells, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of functions being carried out that we might not even understand, but we don't need to understand that. That information is meant to be functional in the cell. It's chemically functional. It carries out some biological purpose. Even if we don't know what it is, it's still, it's still functional. So this is what we mean by functional information. At the heart of that equation is a probability. And the probability defines just how much information you're going to need. So, uh, for example, if I tell you somewhere on some planet in our galaxy, I have left a pile of gold bars. And uh, if you can find them, they're yours. Well, when you start calculating all the planets and possible planets in this galaxy, there are so many options that you're going to have to have a piece of information that eliminates all those options and zeroes in on the right planet and the right location on that planet. So what that means is that the more, it, basically, if you went out to just randomly find the planet, the probability of doing so is extremely small. And what I mean by extremely small is that there's a ton of options, but only one works. Or maybe it's on 17 different planets. Only 17 out of that total number works. 
That ratio is at the heart of information equations. And that is why the more improbable something becomes, the more information you're going to need in order to achieve the function or make it happen. So uh, I have a live example of this, I think. Um, I was reading the other day that mercury has diamonds on it. Lots and lots and lots and lots of diamonds. But they didn't say where or how to get there. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to have to build a nice spacecraft that can get that close to the sun without the occupants, or at least a robotic spacecraft to go get there and find those. And building that spacecraft is going to take a lot of information. Like, for example, I used to work for an air, a company that produced aircraft engines, and um, there was a lot of information required to produce that engine, including the individual bits that for different bits and pieces. But you could actually digitize that into ones and zeros and put it on a, uh, a flash drive, for example. You could do that. And that flash drive now contains the functional information required to produce that aircraft engine. And, they, and that functional information can be evaluated or quantified in terms of these equations you see in scientific literature. Now, here's the thing. There is a threshold. There is a certain amount of information that can accidentally be produced in this world. Like say, for example, a child's collection of alphabet, plastic alphabet characters. You dump that on the floor and you can accidentally form a one-letter word like ah, for example. No problem. You can actually maybe sometimes produce a two-letter word like it or of or to. And that's that's reasonably probable to do. So basically, you don't need any functional information to produce a two-letter word. All you have to do is tip the box over and there it goes. But the longer the word, then it becomes more difficult to form it by just dumping it on the floor. And especially if these words get strung together, start forming sentences. And this is why we know from observation that there is a threshold beyond which you're going to start needing an intelligent mind to produce that information. So you can accidentally produce trivially small amounts of information by dumping those alphabet characters on the floor. There is a threshold. And if you start wanting to produce, let's say, a a new, more efficient aircraft engine, you're not going to try and get that information by dumping alphabet characters out on the floor. Okay, so It's going to take a long time. Like... Real-life example again, um, we play Scrabble. And mm-hmm. so you pull your put your hand in the um, bag, you grab uh, a handful. If you get seven exactly perfect, you, you, yeah, you got exactly seven. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. somebody with a mind feeling, trying to get seven. Now you pull yeah. it out, blindfolded, put it on the little wooden thing, display thing, and you get a seven-character word the first time. Yeah, and it's, it, it's improbable. But when you actually punch the values of that instance into these equations that measure functional information, uh, you actually get, it doesn't require a lot of information to form one seven-letter word, even though it is quite improbable by our measure of things. I just know it's never happened so, for me. 
Yeah. And, um, <laughs> well, it's basically you can sit there for a very long six. time. Keep trying it. Yeah, no, because there's only so many seven letter words possible in English, but yet there are so many possible seven letter combinations. And that ratio is what you'll find in the heart of those equations that measure information. And so at some point, and I, I haven't crunched the numbers for a seven letter word, but at some point it becomes so improbable and, and improbability has also to do with how many trials you have. So if it's just one person playing Scrabble or two, uh, it's not likely to happen. Let's say you have the whole planet playing Scrabble. You have, let's say, 7 billion people playing Scrabble simultaneously. You've actually improved your chances of obtaining that through no intelligence whatsoever, just pulling the things out blindfolded, putting them on the tray, opening your eyes, and there it is. Somebody might have that. And so... What you have to do when you're calculating the threshold beyond which you require an intelligent mind, you have to take these things into account. How many trials are we going to get? When we do that for life, and this is where we hit the punchline here, when we do that for life, we find that the average protein, which has approximately 300 letters, 300 characters or symbols with 20 different options per symbol, so that's a pretty long word if you're playing Scrabble, if you were going to try and come up with proteins playing Scrabble. So it's basically 20 raised to the 300th power. That's how many options there are. What you find is that uh, there's a threshold and, if it, if and it's measured in terms of information. So if you need, and, and information, as you might be aware from your cell phone again, can be measured either in bits or bytes. So eight bits makes one byte. Well, when you crunch the numbers to see how many bits of information are required to code for the average protein, you're talking something like at least 240 bits of information. And uh, that becomes, when you convert that to see what the probability is, you're never going to get that in the history of the universe. You're never going to get in a Scrabble game, that's for sure. But the thing is, people make up words, come up with words all the time in a Scrabble game. How does that happen? It's because you have a mind here, and it's not just some random assembly of letters on your little wooden frame here. That's where the brain cuts in, the mind, and you actually organize these things into words. And so what that tells us is that we have, we know Science knows there is at least one thing that can produce high levels of functional information, and that is intelligent minds. That is not, that is not up for dispute. Every time you type out a text, make an email, put something on Instagram, you are producing functional information. That is a cold, hard scientific fact. Now, here's, here's the kicker. Science knows of nothing else that is able to produce high levels of functional information that they can demonstrate in a repeatable fashion. We have creative stories, but the creative stories fail every time. And the reason they fail is because of that ratio in the equation for information. The probabilities get so small, they will not happen. So you need a mind to step in and organize things. So that becomes a positive indicator. Let's say if you have something that requires 100 bits of information to produce, then you can say that is, is a threshold beyond which we can positively ID that artifact as being a product of an intelligent mind. When we do that for life, 
the fingerprints of an intelligent mind are all over the genome from one end of your DNA to the other. And I have a, another real life example of why um, that intelligent designer needs to be super, super intelligent, um, <laughs> autocorrect. So if you've ever tried to type a text and you've watched what human minds have helped computers uh, figure out what you meant by it when you get one word wrong or one letter wrong, <laughs> yeah. autocorrect is a pretty good proof that uh, the intelligent designer of the universe is much, much more intelligent than we <laughs> yeah. are. Always check your text before you hit send. I've learned that. I've learned that the hard way. I, I, you know, I had one very awkward situation once where it autocorrected a particular word where I was on a chat with a woman on a particular piece. I think it was a piece of software and I was chatting with a company and um, it, it changed this word and it was a massive insult to the poor woman. And I, oh, I type back and say, well, autocorrect, you know, I didn't mean that. And she just laughed. She says, yeah, no, that I totally Happens understand. all the time. <laughs> Explain yeah. that, Darwin. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that um, this, this whole system of, Basically, it's got to be a super intelligence. That was your point. And, that, and why we know that for biological life, it's not just a matter. Uh, you, in order to arrange those little amino acids, and, be, and there's 20 different ones, and you got to have an average of about 300 of those in a row to produce the average protein. In order to know what order to put them in, there is an incredible amount of knowledge, background knowledge you have to have. Because each one of those has different angles within its own structure. And those angles can change things as well. So you have, there are a thing called phi and psi angles when you line all these up. That's what is so beautiful about carbon-based life is that it produces proteins that are capable of forming amazing three-dimensional structures because the angles can be changed in the individual amino acids. Okay. So, so that's positive. That's positive evidence. That's hardcore. In fact, if you say, this is a table here, and a scientist says, okay, how many options do we have on the table right now that can produce a fun a functional information levels of 100 bits or more? There's only one. That is, there's only one that's scientifically testable and repeatable, and that is an intelligent mind. So when you go back to organic life now, there is only one scientific explanation that is repeatable and verifiable that's on the table and that is intelligent mind was required in fact when we we're now beginning to produce artificial proteins and we don't just generate those randomly we're using we're reverse engineering these biological proteins we're learning the rules that that are used and we're using that rules to intelligently design simple proteins and that's where we are right now. It's just very simple proteins. So whatever design the proteins of life is vastly more intelligent than us. And we're just, so in the period that um, human intelligence has existed, approximately what, 6,000 years, you'd say? Uh, Maybe that, it depends. The people argue about that. Like if you're going to start with Adam, then it's 
could be roughly 6,000, although a lot of theologians might say it was a bit longer. If you want to take a secular viewpoint, it could be a few tens of thousands. Okay, so let's, but let's it just give really them uh, ten, few, yeah, tens of thousands um, of years of human existence. It's only been in like the last hundred years that we've even figured out DNA at all. 50 last 50 well, years. actually it's not even 100 yeah it was uh watson and crick so um, well, i think that was in the 50s. so it's taken that long just for us to get to the point where we know of a thing of D, called dna it's only mm. been recently that it's been decoded to the point where we understand it a little bit do we even understand it well, not really. We sort of understand bits and pieces. When they say we decoded the genome, all they mean is that we've got all the symbols. We've read all the symbols. It's kind of like somebody showing you a language, a book in a totally another language, a foreign language, and you say, okay, now I know all the symbols and what order they're in. I don't have a clue what they're saying, mind you, but I have all the symbols. And now the next step is to begin to learn what those symbols mean. And we know, we know quite a few things about, like, say, a gene, for example. We know it'll code for this particular protein over here. And sometimes we'll even know what that protein does in the cell. We also know that maybe this bit of DNA, its job is to start the, start the transcribing of that gene into RNA as, the, as, the, um, as, as you read up a strand of DNA. So, yeah, it's one thing to decode it, and I think decode is a bit pretentious. It's one thing to figure out all the symbols and what order they're in, but it's quite another to understand what they all do. So we know that this happened, though. So a superintelligence of some kind created this. Organic life depends on it created the universe to support it. Why? Well, that's the $64,000 question. And that's another probably uh, live stream in and of itself. But um, well, does, does think, it matter though? Oh, it does. It does. Why does it matter? Well, I think it matters because it makes, it seems to make a difference to us if there's some point to life. If I'm just a bag of meat sitting here that has no purpose or point and 10 to the 20th years from now, there'll be nothing left of me or even a memory of me. It was just an exercise in nothing. Uh, that can be kind of depressing. But if I have that there's some purpose for our existence, that can make all the difference in the world, especially if it's not a purpose, I just make up. Because if I just make up, I'm just making stuff up as to why I exist. That's uh, sooner or later, an intelligent person is going to realize I just made that up. But if you have the designer of the cosmos that has created us for a particular purpose and point, that that's huge. We need to find out what that is, and we'll definitely look at that in a in a future live stream. We need to find out what that is. But the question is, how do we do that? How in the world do I tell you what it is and you see that I'm just not making it up or being religious, so to speak? Okay, so we know that science has spent um, many, 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 many years, uh, probably since humans were able to really figure out um, 
what space is and, and all of that. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out where we came from, which will hopefully tell us why we came from somewhere. <laughs> um, I, I want to formulate the question for maybe what the next episode looks like. Um, we're spending a lot of time trying to answer the question, why am I here? Mm. Not because it yeah. matters how I'm here, but why I'm here. Is mm -hmm. that not a logic question? Well, logic should certainly be part of what we use to figure out the answer to that. But if the creator of the cosmos has not got in touch with us to let us know what the purpose is, it uh, might be a little difficult for us just with our own limited intellects to figure out what it is. But what I would suggest is that the creator of the cosmos has gotten in touch with us. And we have been told what the purpose for our existence is. But if I just tell people right off the bat what it is, I find they say, well, you just made that up. Or you're getting religious now. Or you're just quoting maybe the Bible or Jesus or something. And uh, so then they just, their eyes glaze over and they lose interest. So, but I think there is a way, there is a way to say that, yes, God has appeared to us. He has stepped into human history and he's given some reasons for us to believe that he was the real deal. It wasn't just some guy claiming to be God. There's at least two very good reasons to think that when he claimed to be God, there's a reason to pay attention. Two good reasons. And that being the case, then we say, well, then what was his message to humanity? Because his message to humanity centers around the reason why we exist. So I know a lot of religions have an origin story. And in a way, Charles Darwin and that religion has come up with its own origin story. Mm -hmm. Now the question is, which origin story has the best scientific, logical explanation? Would you say that's the next step? Not, well, um, I say that logic and science will only get you so far, especially as we showed in the, one of our first episodes, that the origin of nature, the thing that caused nature, cannot be natural. And as soon as you're talking about a, a, a super intellect that cannot be natural, then science is out of the question. You're not going to be able to use science to analyze something that's not natural or I call it supernatural. At that point, you're going to have to have some other piece of information, something else. So you might say, well, a person who's devoted to science might say, well, the best option, if we're going to say the initial criteria is, is the one, the explanation has the best scientific explanation. Well, that might actually preempt the real explanation if the real explanation is supernatural. So I think science can be used to look for evidence, which is what we've been discussing. Science can be used for evidence that there's a creator and logic can be used to show that this creator has to be not natural, which we already did. And so the next thing to do is, well, I would use what I call the historical argument for the existence of God and that he's active in humanity. That's the next step. And what I would say in a nutshell is 
there was an individual in history, it should be as no surprise, who claimed that he was God, and that was Jesus of Nazareth. He actually claimed he was God. But there were two reasons, two highly unusual lines of warrant to take him seriously. Number one, there were ancient prophecies hundreds and even thousands of years before he came that he fulfilled against impossible odds. And number two, he said his main claim to credibility would be established by his resurrection from the dead, and it appears that actually happened in the first century. Highly unusual warrant is used to back up some highly unusual claim that he is God, and he had those two. They're actually unique in human history. We have no other human in history. In fact, here's something interesting. Most all religions, typically, except for one, they start with some historical person or maybe a group of people who then come up with some writings or some teachings, and the religion is born out of that. Starts with a person or a group of people, and they invent this religion, and then it proceeds. Authentic Christianity, on the other hand, is the only religion in human history that starts thousands of years before its founder shows up. It starts back centuries before the time of Christ, thousands of years before the time of Christ, with these all looking forward to this Messiah figure, this, this Christ, uh, which is from the Greek word Christos, which is, which is the, from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah. So for thousands of years, we have this pointing towards the idea that God's going to come someday as a human being. He's going to actually be born as a little boy. Jesus Christ comes, shows up. He says, I'm the one. I am, I am God. He literally used the Hebrew name for God there, which was I am. But he just didn't say that. He actually fulfilled those ancient prophecies pertaining, pertaining to his first arrival. And it appears that the historical evidence seems to support this idea that something massive happened centering around this resurrection. That just Christianity just exploded within weeks and spread throughout the Roman Empire within two, three decades. Something happened in history. Doesn't prove that the creator of the universe has visited us. If you're talking about logical proof or mathematical proof, what it does do is give us a very, very good case that something unique in history happened centering around this historical event where a person appeared in history who actually claimed to be the creator of the universe, God himself, and had two highly unusual lines of warrant to back up, at least to think he might be telling the truth. All right. So that's coming up. Uh, great conversation. Those of you who are watching, drop in the comments why we're right, why we're wrong, what your thoughts are on all of this. Uh, we would love to hear uh, what you, where you're coming from. If you have questions, Put those in the comments or go to kirkdurston.com and uh, send in a form there if you want more of a private conversation. And um, if you want somebody to talk to you, if, maybe if you're struggling with some stuff in life right now, I know the um, world is a bit in turmoil, as it always has been. Uh, we'll get into that in a, in a later conversation. Um, if you want somebody to pray for you or talk to you about uh, something you're going through, go to kirkdurston.com, use the contact form there, and uh, we have people that would love to uh, chat with you. So, um, yeah, reach out. 
hit the like button, subscribe. Um, I think we'll probably do some pre-recordings. I'm gone for the next uh, two Thursdays, but we can do some pre-recordings and keep the live streams going. So, uh, and, uh, and uh, we'll show up in the comments uh, while they're running. All right. Uh, enjoy your uh, rest of your day. Uh, I hope the snow stays away from you. Uh, but uh, enjoy the rest of your day. We'll talk to you later, Kirk. Bye for now, Sheldon.